This episode is brought to you by March of Dimes, who is still honoring National Birth Defects Prevention Month since January 2021. Go find them on social media and share the hashtag best for you, best for baby. Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all the ways our lives as parents, women, and mothers connect with culture, politics, and oh so many other things. I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy. I'm a registered nurse with 20 years experience in labor and delivery, and I'm the mother of a whole bunch of grown-up kids. I'm also an avid maternal health advocate and feminist who truly believes that if we want to change the world for the better, we need to make women the leaders. That'll do it. This week, we're in the middle of Trump's second impeachment trial, and we're hearing from impeachment managers in great detail about what went down on January 6th, and it's worse than we even knew. What happens from here is important on many levels because it speaks to accountability. What's blowing me away is the contrast between the impeachment manager's presentation of the facts and evidence and the presentation by Trump's two defense attorneys. They're amateurs compared to the pros. Raskin and Plaskett in particular are stunning. They're excellent. If the Senate does not vote to impeach, it'll be because they're not willing to look at the evidence truthfully, I believe. What else is going on on Capitol Hill? Well, we've got a couple of really um, exciting maternal health bills up. Momnibus bill was introduced. Um, We've talked about this bit before in the podcast, mostly because this bill uh, is very similar to legislation that was introduced in the House last spring, right before the pandemic hit. The new Momnibus bill is a little different. It was introduced by Representatives Lauren Underwood and Alma Adams, who co-chair the House's Black Maternal Health Caucus, and Senator Cory Booker. They announced the act via a virtual press conference this week. We've also talked about the fact on that Black women die at rates of three to five, sometimes much, much higher rates, far more often than white women from pregnancy-related conditions due to unequal access to healthcare, structural racism, and biases in the healthcare system. The Momnibus Bill would fund community organizations and state and local governments working to improve maternal health outcomes, training programs on bias, racism, and discrimination in maternity care settings, and efforts to grow the perinatal workforce. It would also address social determinants of health, like housing, food and water access, transportation, childcare, and access to healthcare. All of these factors play huge roles in women's health before, during, and after pregnancy. So we're hoping that this new Senate, which is now controlled by the Democrats, will pass the bill and will finally make some headway on this problem. What else? Well, Senator Tammy Duckworth introduced the End Diaper Need Act of 2021. This bill addresses the fact that one in three families struggle to provide enough diapers for their children, and sometimes it puts them in the position of having to choose between diapers and other essential items, you know, like the electric bill, 
medicine, healthcare, childcare, even food. Not to mention the stuff every new parent needs, like onesies and sleepers and toys. The End Diaper Need Act of 2021 will assist low-income families that aren't able to afford diapers for their babies or toddlers. This is great. This is excellent. Now, here's what happens if you want to support these two bills and others like them. These bills, again, it's the Momnibus Act and the End Diaper Need Act. Now, now that the bill has been introduced, these bills, it needs co-sponsors and supporters to sign on to it. That's where you come in. Call or email your congressperson and senator and tell them that you would like them to support and co-sponsor these bills. Tell them you are one of their constituents, that you're concerned about parents in your community, and that these bills go a long way towards addressing important needs. That's it. It takes about a minute. It's super simple and it's super effective. Don't be nervous. Your call will be answered by an intern or a staff member who will simply write down your statement. And then at the end of the day or the week, they tally up how many comments a certain topic or bill received. And they'll discuss it with their boss, your congressperson or senator. Um, And that lets them know that this is a topic that's being discussed among their constituents. It doesn't actually take that many calls or emails to make an impression on a senator or congressperson either. Even as few as a handful or a dozen calls, emails, it represents a lot of constituents. That's because if you make the effort to call, chances are that several of the people you live with or associate with are also supportive of these bills. So one call or email magnifies what people are concerned about. And that's basically how policy changes by concerned citizens who make a call, drop an email, or if you're really, really passionate, make an appointment to show up in their offices, even if it's by Zoom these days. And we can talk about how you do that another time. So make a call. Let them know that you're interested in these acts and that you support it and you want them to also. That's politics in action. And that's it for our politics update. We're going to switch gears here and take a real, real quick break, and then we'll come on back and talk about a range of parenting topics with this week's guest. For 80 years, March of Dimes has helped millions of babies survive and thrive. Now they're building on that legacy to level the playing field for all moms and babies, no matter their age, socioeconomic background, or demographics. March of Dimes is honoring National Birth Defects Prevention Month, which was January 2021, with the theme, Best for You, Best for Baby, which you can follow and share on social media. Just use hashtag best for you, best for baby. Protecting yourself and making healthy choices is more important now than ever for those who are trying to get pregnant in 2021. As we continue facing the COVID-19 pandemic, pregnant persons must take special care of themselves as they prepare for their baby. March of Dimes offers six tips to increase your chances of having a healthy full-term pregnancy and baby. Just head on over to the March of Dimes website to learn all about them. That's www.marchofdimes.org ppnp. Okay, we are back. And this week, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff with our guest, Samantha Hart, who is the author of the new book, Blind Pony. She's also the creative director for some of Hollywood's biggest movies, performers, and projects. She's worked with the greats like Cher, Kurt Cobain, Aerosmith, and on films like Fargo, Dead Man Walking, and Boys Don't Cry. She was a teen runaway who is now 
a mother herself, an entrepreneur, and an author. Let's get Samantha Hart on the line. Hi, Samantha. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm fine, Jeannie. How are you? Nice to, doing nice great. to hear your voice. Yeah, yours too. You are in Los Angeles, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. I was born and raised there. Grew up there. Love that town. I haven't lived well, there since the early 90s, but um, yeah, that's my hometown. Yeah, I. it's not my hometown, but it feels like it. I've lived here most of my life. Yeah. I've spent spent some time in Chicago um, for a little while this past, a while back, but mm-hmm. LA's home. Yeah. What part of town are you in? I'm out in the boondocks, like Malibu Canyon area. Oh, lucky you. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Well, I bet you and I could talk about, you know, sites of Los Angeles all day, but we're here to talk about something else. So my first big hard question for you is, who are you and what do you do? Um, well, I guess I'm a creative director by trade. That's what I have done for the past many years of my career. I've been a creative director in movies, uh, television, commercials, films, uh, branded content, and and I started my career in the music business. So I'm a creative director and copywriter. And then I, during the pandemic, I had this, I've had this desire to write a book for some time. And it kept haunting me. And every time I'd start writing, I'd get busy with a job or something in my life would pop up and I'd have to divert my attention away from it. And when the pandemic hit, I just felt like, well, now's the time. Mm. And the funny thing about writing a book is if you're a copywriter by trade and you think you can write copy when someone comes up and says, oh, write some copy for this film or whatever, and you think you've got it made a career this way, it's very different when you try to write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really challenged by it. And, but it came, once I had really made up my mind to write it, it just sort of flowed out. And so now I'm going to add author to my resume. Nice. So are you not working during the pandemic and primarily writing? Well, mostly writing. I'm writing my second book now. Uh, But my company, while Bill does get work, often, mm-hmm. you know, over just mm-hmm. by word of mouth, we kind of yeah. have a reputation for being creative and able to sort of think out of the box, uh, to solve marketing problems, issues. And mm-hmm. so I take great pride in what I do and I like doing it. So I, I don't really see a reason to stop doing it, even though yeah. I'm trying to sort of write another book, but I, I, I enjoy it. So yeah, you know, I've been working a little bit. We did a uh, couple of, we did, we were involved in doing a couple of things for the, to get the word out about the pandemic, to wear a mask, PSAs, things like that. I'm very into doing a lot of nonprofit work. Mm-hmm. So I think over the p- pandemic, that's been our focus is really trying to do things that are going to benefit the community. Nice. 
That's a good way to spend the pandemic, writing a book and serving the community. Nice work. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. So when you are not working and writing, what is your life like? Well, I have two sons that mm-hmm. are in high school mm-hmm. and they keep me moving at a very I rapid bet. pace. I bet. Uh, they're, they're amazing kids, really quite different in many ways, but uh, both very, very creative kids. One's a musician and one is an artist. And then I have an older daughter and she lives in Massachusetts and I have two granddaughters Mm. and they're the just apple of my eye. (laughs) They're great kids, all of them. And so I, I have a very full life. I'm very blessed. Boy, it sounds like it. And raising teenage boys, raising artists and musicians, you and I have a lot in common. <laughs> I have <laughs> I have um, creative kids too. And it's a special kind of parenting, I think, to be able to lead those kids through. It so, can be, yes. Well, my daughter was also very creative. She was a singer. She has a seven octave range. And I always thought she would end up on Broadway, but now she has an amazing career. She is the, she has her own theater arts group camp, like Mm -hmm. organization Mm -hmm. and she teaches. So she's, she's very, and she's very good at it. She's wonderful. Isn't it Um, cool to see our grown kids turn into who they are? Oh, it's so cool. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah. 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 really, Really rewarding. Well, you, um, and I were introduced because of the book that you've written, Blind Pony, and I wanted you to tell us a little bit about it. Well, it, as I said, it was something that was in my subconscious mind for quite some time. And I was, I, I always felt like I was going to write a book about my experiences. In fact, I came upon a journal I had written when I was 12 years old. And it said, one day I'm going to write my story about me, nobody special. Mm -hmm. And that that was exactly the reason why I should write it, because I am nobody special. And I came upon that journal because I've, I've always written in a journal my entire life. And I said, you know, it's time for this 12 year old child to get her wish. It's time for me to write my story because she really did have something to say. And it begins, the book begins in my early childhood when I was four years old and goes up through my very early twenties. And it tells the story of growing up on a farm in rural Pennsylvania that was at, at once idyllic and also a nightmare. Um, for, from the time I was five years old, I had been abused by my grandfather and my mother was knew about the abuse and really didn't do anything to prevent it or to help me. And so I ran away when I was 14 years old and I, was it her father? It was her father. And And you know, you've done the same to her. Well, see, that's, that's not something I, know for sure, but Mm. I've gone through years of therapy and yes, I mean, it seems that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cycles repeat, don't they? Yes. And so when, you know, when I 
got pregnant with my daughter, that was one of the things that really popped out to me was the cycle of abuse stops with me. I am Mm -hmm. going to be the best mother ever. And I'm going to be unique in that way and perfect and, you know, and I, it was so important to me to be a good mother. I, and it came naturally. I mean, it, I don't, couldn't see any other way, but to be a good mother. Mm -hmm. And that made me really mourn my lost childhood, I think. Yeah. Because it was so unnecessary. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, as a, a parent and a grandparent, you look back on your own childhood and you wonder how the hell could any of that have happened? You know, oh, it's unbelievable. You're right, yeah. Jeannie. It just yeah. feels, it just sickens and saddens me beyond something that I can put into words. And that that's what gave voice to the book, I think, yeah. because I felt really motivated to help anybody else who feels alone or might have a similar experience or have gone through this, you know, back when I was a child, it wasn't as talked about things like this. They were swept under the carpet. It was, it was not something that people ever would speak up about. People were too embarrassed or I'm not really sure why. I mean, I don't know how common it is, but since I've written the book and shared it with people, I'm discovering there are quite a few blind ponies out there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, I'm not unique in this way, but I feel like, you know, I finally had the courage to talk about it mm-hmm. and really feel mo- felt motivated about sharing it because I feel that if anyone can hear my story and they see how I've processed it and come to terms with it, maybe it will help them do the same. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it sounds like you did too. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, at least in Southern California, living in a beach community, um, there wasn't a lot of parental supervision going on in day-to-day life. It was like, you know, run out the door, go to the beach, do what you want all day, come home before the lights are off or before the street lights are on. And there you go. And today's parents are hyper supervisors. I mean, we know every minute of what our kids are doing, or at least we think we do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of parents who mostly raise themselves. And as parents, they're all hands-on, like the opposite of what they grew up with. And, you know, it sounds like your own childhood and teen experience has really shaped your parenting that way. Well, they did. I mean, when my daughter was young, going through teenage years, the one thing, and she was very academic and very studious and a very good kid. She was in theater arts groups and really she had that amazing voice. So she went to private voice lessons and she, she was always busy. And so she, there wasn't a lot of time for her to get into bad stuff or whatever. But that was the key, wasn't it? Yeah. Keep them busy. Keep I, mean, them busy. I, was, I wasn't really a helicopter parent for, with her except for one thing. I was always terrified in the back of my mind that she would want to run away one day. Mm-hmm. And so I always tried to create this home that she would love so that she wouldn't run away. And I feel like if I had it all to do over again, I would let go of that fear because it was, it was at times almost crippling. Mm. And I think that if I had, you know, looking back on it from 
50,000 feet, I think that I was, I wasn't, I let her, I think I was not as strict with her as maybe Mm -hmm. I should have been, even though she Mm -hmm. was such a good kid, there wasn't a lot to be strict about, but I don't think strict is the right word. I think it's kind of like, for example, when she went to get braces and this is really funny, uh, she decided that she didn't want to get braces after all Mm -hmm. and was able to talk me out of it. So, and she didn't really need braces. Honestly, that her teeth were pretty close to perfect and she likes a little tiny bit of an imperfection, even though it kind of, she had a, a diasma or whatever. Her front teeth were a little bit, there was this tiny space there. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of corrected itself as she got older. So, and in fact, she didn't really need braces. But like with my sons, it was a whole different story. It was like, you're getting braces. You're going to get them tomorrow. That's it. It was never yeah. any discussion. They were just, okay. You know, I mean, yeah. boys and girls are very different. And also I have are. a husband now. I didn't have one then. Yeah. So I think the the support of having a partner to sort of, you know, share the burden of, or not the burden, the, the responsibility of a child was definitely a different experience. But that said, there were things that she would just have an opinion about. And that was, I would never try to discourage her, or talk her out of something that maybe I didn't feel was right for her at the time because I didn't want to lose this bond we had because we were so, yeah. so close. Yeah. But yeah. I think it was just a, also a maturing, a maturity thing. Like mm-hmm. I, but it was also because I was, I was a little damaged. I, I, and I, I didn't have a good role model, so I didn't really know how best to be, I think, but I, I know that I, I did good with, you know, I did a good job with her. She went to a private boarding school up in Idlewild, which you probably know, Idlewild Arts Academy, and she, she graduated from Emerson College, and she's, she's very well-rounded, very smart, very intelligent, very, very woke person, beautiful person. But so I I don't think that the fact that I wasn't as strict as I should have been, maybe I don't, I don't think it really damaged her in any way, but I think that it was just that simple feeling that this love might be conditional on something that I felt from my childhood. I was so damaged by my childhood. Took yeah. me years of therapy to be able to really even talk about it. So, the book is a real breakthrough for me. So you ran away from mm-hmm. the nightmare situation you were in, and you found yourself in Los Angeles. That's right. And what happened? Well, I mean, along the way, I I did graduate from high school, and that was a whole story in itself of how I managed to do that. And I was, I was quite smart and I was able to test out of classes and, but I was, had a singular focus of being able to support myself. I had thought at one point I, I would try to live with my father, but he, he didn't want me either. So I was pretty much on my own and I ended up in LA and I, I became a high stake backgammon player. (laughs) And, you know, I kind of just fell into all these different 
scenarios and situations that were really quite unbelievable when I look back on it. Just Okay. I got to ask you about that. I got to <laughs> ask you about the backgammon because I remember in the late 70s, early 80s, backgammon was, it was a craze. Was a craze. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Well, when I first came over to Los Angeles to kind of dip my toe in the water if I was going to move here, because I ran away to Arizona looking for my dad there. Mm-hmm. And I found him and he he was just a scullywag. He was just, he was a very colorful character that honestly was was like, I saw a lot of myself in him and mm-hmm. he was a risk taker and kind of a gypsy kind of guy. And he played the ponies and horse track and he was, he was, he was really a colorful person, but he wasn't a good father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first day I met him, I'll never forget. He, he, I walk in, I'm 14 years old. And he says, what do you want to drink? And I said, I'll have a Coke. And he said, "Ah, oh, make it a rum and Coke, you know? Oh. Like, yeah. I mean, he was not a good, no, per- not a good role model. And then he told me that night I wouldn't be living with him and I'd be on my own. And he did help me enroll in high school. So that was good. Did but he help you then, find a place to live? Yeah. He helped me find a place to live. Um, but he didn't give me any money or anything like that. He just, he gave me a C note and that was about it. Hmm. Um, and then he'd show up occasionally and beach himself on the couch and have a beer before driving home. He'd be pissed drunk. And he was, hmm. you know, he was just a crazy good man. And then when I finally wanted to leave Arizona, he found out about it. So he put sugar in my the gas tank of my car. So I couldn't Whoa. leave. Whoa. Um, you know, it's just unbelievable. Hmm. So I ended up the first time I came to California thinking to move, I stayed with someone who liked to play backgammon and I knew nothing about the game. And we basically stayed up all night playing backgammon. And eventually I started to learn. And then when I came back and he let me stay with him for a while, uh, I had taken a book on backgammon back to Arizona with me and studied it cover to cover and became actually quite good at it. And so I came back over here and there was a club and I met someone and he gave me passes and I ended up going there and, and I was, I was really, you know, still a teenager and I was just going in there and just commanding an audience and throwing it down and play, playing like, uh, like I was born to play backgammon. It just, I was better than anybody and I couldn't lose since I sort of got the moniker backgammon girl, which I talk about in the book. And did you make a living that way? Pardon? And you were able to make a living that way? Um, in a manner of speaking, I sort of ended up staying in some, a, a famous playboy's mansion, um, for a little while until, you know, I sort of, saw through that facade and was smart enough to get away from that. And, and then I kind of bumped into somebody else. I'm kind of like a Forrest Gump character. I just sit Mm -hmm. on a bench and I meet all these crazy people and Mm -hmm. I would fall into these different situations. I mean, when you're a young girl in Los Angeles, anything can happen to you. Yeah, it really can. It's not all good, but it's not all bad either. I mean, I'm, I think I had such a variety of experiences and I, I wouldn't change it for anything. I mean, I think 
uh, made me the person I am, but I, I was, I did encounter some, some very heartbreaking experiences as well along the way. But then I met a British guy and I ended up moving to England and, um, I was there for a while and, you know, that was a good experience in a lot of ways, but bad in other ways. So, you know, LA is such a destination point for so many people who have this idea that get to that spot in the world and you're going to, your dreams are going to come true. And, you know, I also grew up in Los Angeles in the seventies and there's a lot of, I think everybody calls it Hollywood grit and, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the kind of grimy, seamy side of things. And especially in the entertainment industry. And I never aspired to be an entertainer at all, but I knew a lot of people who were, and there is just so much struggle for acceptance and relevance and struggle to fit in, but stand Mm -hmm. out. It takes a huge toll on people, you know, their egos, their, their, what they think about themselves, their careers. It's really high stakes, but you know, the success rates for individuals who go that route, if you're using traditional measures for success are super low. So I guess the question is, what is it about Hollywood? Well, for me, I had come here when I was young, when I was a teen, you know, before I was a teenager and my, you know, when I was in elementary school, I came here often to see an uncle and aunt who lived in Long Beach. And I was attracted to Los Angeles because I loved the weather and I loved the town. You know, I, I liked coming from Pennsylvania, being born in, in Pennsylvania. I li- my family lived in Arizona for a short while. And then we moved back to the farm when I was four. And so Pennsylvania was really all I knew. And when I came over here to, to be on vacation with my uncle and aunt, my uncle was a, pastor and he took a group up into the high sierras for Mm. backpack trips underprivileged Mm. kids and even though i was kind of underage for the group i was allowed to go because i was his niece and it was really during those backpack trips up in the high sierras where my uncle would talk to me i started to break down the wall about my grandfather Mm. and he kind of knew that this might be an issue for me. He was very intuitive and very spiritual. And so he started to kind of tap into that with me and I would not tell him the truth. I didn't want to tell anyone the truth. I was terrified to tell the truth because my grandfather made me afraid. So I think that in the back of my mind, I thought, well, maybe I'll come here and somehow, you know, I'll hook up with my uncle and, I'll finally tell him, you know, I was very young. I was, mm-hmm. I was a teenager, so I didn't really process things, but it wasn't for, I didn't come here to follow a pursuit of being an actress or uh, to be famous or anything like that. I came here because I liked the weather and because I kind of thought I knew somebody here, my, my relatives. But once I got here and I came to Los Angeles because this man offered a place to stay or whatever, I didn't realize how far Hollywood is away from Long Beach if you don't have a car. Yeah, it's another universe. And I didn't have his phone number. So how Mm. was I supposed to get in touch with him? So it was was very complicated um, that way for me at the time. It was just, 
I didn't really know how to process it all, but I came here and I, and I just fell into certain things. And when I hooked up with this, this, uh, British guy, um, he was a photographer and he, I started doing styling work for him, you know, as a set decorator, stylist, you know, putting the models in outfits and whatnot. And I was very good at it. So he kept me around for that. And then eventually I went over to England with him and we, we, we worked over there. So I didn't really have time to stop and think about my life in any kind of, with any kind of scope. I kind of was reacting mm-hmm. every day from one day to the next, just kind of trying to get along, trying to keep moving one foot in front of the other. Yeah. So you've been, you know, a couple of decades later, You've been the creative director for some big names and big films. We should mention some of those because they're pretty impressive. Well, thank you. I, I, I love films. Uh, I love, I worked in, in the record business. I, I really love that as well. I worked when at Geffen Records, when it was the heyday and there was Aerosmith and Nirvana and Cher and (laughs) uh, Guns N' Roses. And then, I went into film marketing and I worked at Gramercy Pictures, which is now Focus Films, Focus Mm -hmm. Features. And I, I did the campaigns for movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral and Dead Men Walking, Usual Suspects, Fargo and Dazed and Confused. Um, So I was able to get Academy Awards for quite a few of my movies and you've got Academy Awards. Yeah. You, um, wow. No, for, for Dead Man Walking and Bongo yeah. and Usual Suspects, they all won Academy Awards. And then I went to Fox Searchlight where the I worked on a lot of other great indie films, including Boys Don't Cry, which mm-hmm. also won an Oscar. And then I went to Universal Pictures and I worked on just, you know, wide variety of films. Uh, it was funny when my boss hired me at Universal, he said, what's going to be the biggest difference of working here than at Fox Searchlight? Or I said, well, you want me to make opening weekend for these films, what my films in the indie world made their entire life. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a, it was quite a big difference uh, working at a big studio. And then I, after universal, I started my own company. It was called foundation content and we had offices all across the country and, 50 employees and um and it was really it was really exciting it was i i liked it because it got me back to my indie roots which i seemed to really thrive in uh because we were do kind of doing indie advertising because the entire business was kind of turning upside down and as businesses do the one thing mm-hmm. you can count on is change right yeah yeah and so we we started doing production and post sort of combining the two under one roof and kind of disrupting the way things were done and and i won some awards and really i had a great path during that time as well and then when things disrupted again i started my new company wild bill which is more of a boutique and mm-hmm. it's just a couple of people and it's kind of more more focused on entertainment properties and really doing projects that we want to do. 
not so many to keep the engine going, so to speak. So what personal qualities do you think that, you know, you've kind of always had that helped you not just get through childhood and teenage years and a whole lot of change in your career, but they've really helped you achieve big results. What do you, what do you think, what do you rely on? Well, for a long time, when I was going through my young adulthood, I had a mantra and that was, I've got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And I repeat that quite frequently in the book. I've got nothing to lose. What's the difference? I can do this. Uh, What's the worst that could happen? And, you know, I'm reticent to call that a life tip that I would want to pass on to anybody, Mm -hmm. but it gave me, it gave me a certain confidence, I think, that I could step out of my comfort zone and what's the worst that could happen? So I, I just went for things and I think I've all, I've always, I always felt like anything I wanted to achieve, I could do. Mm-hmm. I just had a singular confidence or, uh, you know, I don't know. I, Courage and resilience. Yeah, yeah, resilience. I think, yeah. yeah, I think, I think I wanted to prove people wrong. Mm-hmm. I wanted to show that I wasn't, I, uh, I wanted to live down my sh- my own private shame, I think. Yeah. For, yeah. And I didn't want to show my vulnerability. I wanted to be courageous and show that I could, I could do anything I wanted to and nobody was going to stop me. And, and it served in the end, it's kind of served me well. I, I think it was me kind of running away from who I was. And I talk about that a lot in my book as well about identity and trying to hide, hide who you are because of your own private shame and just trying to insulate yourself and your feelings by putting on, a veneer that maybe isn't as authentic as you could be. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about writing Blind Pony. Um, You know, you you just mentioned that you didn't want to be vulnerable. This book is vulnerable. And so I'm curious, how did you um, structure it? And, you know, what was your, your writing life like while you were creating it? Well, it was very cathartic. And, and like I said, I started it a while back and then I would put it aside and then I would pick it up and I'd start reading it and I'd say, Oh, this is terrible. I'm such a bad writer. I've got to, I, I can't do this. And then I, but like I said, old habits die hard. And I kept saying, well, you can do this. You can do this. Mm-hmm. So I, I had these two diametrically opposed forces within my own self and fighting against each other for a long time. And I was very self-critical, my writing. And then, like I said, when the pandemic happened, I just really focused on it and it finally came together for me. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote very fluidly and, uh, and it, it just, it just came out. So, so did uh, you decide that you wanted to publish it yourself through Amazon? I, it, well, rather than going through it's available everywhere. Okay. Um, yeah. But I, I spoke before about really liking the indie world. Yeah. And I think that I did 
you know, I did do a few query letters and I did talk to a lot of people, people I trust in the business. And they all had a resounding vote that I should self-publish because mainly because with a memoir, a lot of times if you get into that system of a big publisher, they may not want you to say this, or they may not want you to say that, or it may take years to get it to fruition yeah, uh, for it to be able to come out. And I think I just felt the timing was right for the book. And I also felt that I had put so much time into it by actually living the experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I, I, I really just, I didn't really feel like I wanted it to go through a machine in that way. Right. Um, But I, not that I have anything against book publishers. I hope that my book, my next book gets picked up because it's a fiction, Mm -hmm. but I think for this book, I was very protective of it. And so I was fine with doing it as an indie. I think that the world of independent publishing has revolutionized in the last five to 10 years. And it's a totally different thing than it used to be. And I think that there are a lot more opportunities, both for writers and, excuse me, for readers to be able to access a wider range of material than what traditional publishing houses may decide they want you to read. So it's, I think the time is now. Yeah, it's true. It really, I've, I've learned so much about publishing. In fact, that I'm sort of, I'm publishing it under a company name and I'm also interested in reading other books. Mm-hmm. So I'm, it's sort of in an incubation stage still, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of starting an independent publishing company because I see the value of it and the need. And yeah. once you've gone through the processes I have with all of the different things you have to do to prepare a book, it's crazy. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. definitely a lot of work, but I really enjoyed the process. So I'm kind of quite intrigued with that. Yeah. Uh, not ready to start reading manuscripts yet. Not until this next <laughs> book's done, but, um, but there has been talk with a few people about wanting to uh, make Blind Pony a series. All right. Which could be yeah. really fun. It would be a great role for a young, a young actress. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Interesting. Really interesting. You've had a, an interesting career path while parenting that it's been fun to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, my daughter, like I said, she had a really unorthodox childhood. I mean, not many kids can say that they were bounced on Kurt Cobain's knee or (laughs) that they had (laughs) arguments with Rob Zombie Mm -hmm. (laughs) or things like that. But, um, but it's been, yeah, it's been a real journey and it's been fun. And I think I, I was, had the for- great fortune to be a young mom and then also, you know, an older mom. Mm-hmm. And looking at those two different times in my life are really interesting because they were, they are so different, but yeah. yet they're, the seeds are the same. Yeah. The love yeah. is the same. Yeah. Yeah. But our wisdom our level of experience, our self-confidence as mothers. Yeah. I think that in many ways, it's a lot easier to raise your kids when you're an older mom 
um, because I, you have all of that, you know, in your I agree. I arsenal. definitely agree. And even, even the discrimination I felt at Vignette School because uh, I was such a young mom and I would go to the, you know, PTA meetings or be around other parents. And for some reason, during the period that I was her mom, there were mostly like older parents at school mm-hmm. and people kind of discounted what I had to offer. Yeah. And I just kept going. Yeah. I kept trying. Like when I worked on King of the Hill, I bought the whole class, the book King of the Hill. Mm-hmm. And then I brought in the movie. So Steven Soderbergh's film King of the Hill and had them watch it. And then I talked about how I came up with the poster and the marketing campaign. And, and so, you know, I just kept going back to the well with what I had to offer because I really wanted to be part of my daughter's life, even though I, I had a career. So yeah. it, yeah, it, it's, it's fun. But now when I walk in the room at school, it's kind of like, this is how I want to do this. <laughs> and, you know, boom, boom, boom. And I get my way. So yeah, it's definitely yeah. different. Yeah. yeah. It's different. It's different. And boys and girls different. Yeah. Ugh, boys and girls are, Oh, it's I so know. different. We think we can, you know, I, I guess many of us go into that experience of thinking that it's going to be the same. How different could it be? And then we oh. learn so different. Yeah. So different. Yeah. And yeah, yeah I get a little confused sometimes because, well, the differences are I have a husband now and the differences are, well, they're, uh, I'm, I'm more mature or I have more wisdom, as you said, but the, the bottom line is boys and girls, very different. So different. <laughs> and now my daughter's getting a taste of how different it is with her daughters. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> she just might get a boy in her life one of these days and it'll teach her even more. Yeah. I, I don't think so. She's she's pretty happy with the two. Uh, yeah. Well, we're getting on round to the time where we should wrap things up, but I did want to ask you, what else do you want listeners to know? about you, about Blind Pony, about where they can find it? Well, uh, I would love my, your readers or your listeners to find, find the book on samanthahart.net or Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And they can follow me on the real Samantha, the real Sam Hart on Instagram or Samantha Hart on Twitter or Samantha Hart on Facebook. And I'd love to hear from anyone who wants to share their experiences with me. Um, if they have gone through a similar experience and they want someone to talk about it with, I'd, I'm all ears. That's generous. That's really generous. So we have a few rapid fire roundup questions. Want to answer them? Sure. Okay. What role does feminism play in your life? Huge, (laughs) huge. Um, my life is, uh, I, I, my life is unique because I am a woman Mm -hmm. and because I want people to know it. So I think, uh, it's a very big part of who I am that I believe in female power and equal rights for females. That's for sure. All right. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me 
that. Hmm. That I'd be this happy. Hmm. Hmm. Wouldn't that be a nice message to receive when you're a young, young girl or a young woman and life is hard? If you just knew you're going to be really happy, that'd be such a gift for everybody. Yeah. Well, I think uh, as parents, I think we should think about as, you know, telling our children that. Yeah. No matter what, you're going to be harder. And with all the many milestones that we've been passing by this past couple of years between climate crisis and all the stuff. But but I think ultimately telling your children, giving them hope and a promise that they will be happy is a very simple thing we can do for our kids, isn't it? It's a gift. Yeah. Well, my last question then is this, where do you stand in the world of motherhood? Where do I stand? Mm -hmm. Um, I stand, I stand for, uh, for children's rights and, uh, I stand for hope for the future. I, I, it's a good question, but it's so big. <laughs> there's it's a so big many one. things. Yeah, yeah, there's just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just stand for treating our children with dignity and, and nurturing children for all, you know, to help them be better people and to be the best they can be. I just think life is so precious and our kids are such a gift to us and just being a good parent. It's more than lip service. It's, it's something that you really have to um, give of yourself really uh, selflessly. Yeah. And it's so important. Well, that's a really good answer. Well, Samantha, you and I could talk for a long time about LA and kids. And I think we'll carry that conversation on further down the road. I appreciate your coming and joining the conversation. Well, thank you, Jeannie. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said, Mama said, Mama said. Okay. That's it for this week, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks to March of Dimes, our sponsor for this episode. You can learn more about them at marchofdimes.org slash pp You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Email me at your questions and concerns at jean at jeanfaulkner.com. And let me know in your email if it's okay for me to share it on the air. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Pregnancy Parenting and Politics. And don't forget to pick up your copy of Common Sense Pregnancy wherever you get your books. Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. Talk again next week, everybody. Bye-bye.